Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Alan McGirt. Alan, we're about five months into working from home at this point. Uh, do you miss me? I miss you, Ellen. I, I do miss you. But you know something? I, and I'm i afraid to say this because I, I think there are a lot of benefits to the office. I don't miss the office that much. I, I live in Connecticut and right. had to commute for an hour to get to New York every day. And I'm sort of enjoying the, uh, the benefits of being out here. But I also know that that's not the experience of a majority of people. There's some really tough sides to this. People who live in crowded places, people who have kids who are uh, not in school. It's a difficult time for a lot of people. It is. And it's revealed a lot of rifts and relationships. It's just tough all around. One of the things I didn't quite expect to see was the cost to innovation. So I'm going to talk about that later in this episode with our very own Jeff Colvin, who was also in Connecticut and who I also miss. But he's done a lot of research on working from home for a story that will be in the next issue of the magazine. I do think that collaboration and innovation piece is an important one. And it was a topic that came up in my conversation with today's Leadership Next guest, Anil Bushri the CEO of Workday. Workday is one of these companies that didn't exist 15 years ago, but over that 15 years, it has built itself into a, get this, a $43 billion company. Wow! It's a really great story. It also shows up on some of Fortune's most important lists. It's in the top five of best companies to work for. It's one of the world's most admired. And it shows up in a list we do called the Future 50 that attempts to analyze how companies are positioning themselves for the future. So I am super excited about the interview today. Anil is also, on top of being very smart and having a very interesting company, he's one of the nicest guys in Silicon Valley. It's nice to see the nice guys win. Absolutely. But uh, Ellen, before we hear from Anil, I need to tell you one more thing about working from home. I'm all ears. Sometimes the technology isn't quite as good as you would like it to be. And our listeners are going to hear that in today's interview. We had some glitches in the technology. It's a little rough, but it's worth persevering because uh, the conversation is extremely interesting. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure it's worth it. Let's dive in. I want to Talk first about how the pandemic and the lockdown have affected your business. Because you, of course, you're in the HR software business. You're right there at the sort of critical point where people had to make the decision to work from home and have the systems to work from home. Well, you know, we're fortunate as a, as a cloud company and, and as really a software development company that we can work remotely from home. And so uh, going back into late February, we had a sales kickoff the following week, the first week of March. And while uh, COVID was really just beginning to raise its ugly head, uh, we decided we weren't going to take any risks. And so we canceled that sales kickoff. And as a follow-up, we just said, hey, we're just going to send everybody home. And so we, I think Salesforce and Workday announced the same day we were going to work from home. And, you know, it's definitely been an adjustment. And, you know, the first thing you do is you fall back on your, on your core values We've always been employees, number one. All of us are in business to take care of customers. But if your employees are not in a good place, it's, it's hard for them to take care of your customers. So we made it easy for them, as easy as it could be to work from home. 
We gave everybody who was a non-VP or below a two-week bonus to get ahead of any financial stress they might have in their wow. in their lives, whether it was uh, you know a significant other being out of work or parents or or the like or childcare. And then we continued to host town halls where people could ask questions uh, about where the company was going and how we're going to run the company going forward. We're now four months into it. I am super proud of our, our team uh, and all of our employees. We're delivering some of the highest levels of customer satisfaction we ever have. And we're just doing our best to keep all our employees engaged and productive and happy. It's a tough time for everybody. And what are you saying to employees about the future? I mean, you saw the announcement that Google said they're going to continue work from home through the middle of next year. What, what are you saying? We're saying until January. And, you know, if if there's not a viable vaccine by January, we might very well be in the same position as, as Google. Uh, I am a little bit more optimistic that I think that there's a chance in Q1 that we, we could be back in the office. And, you know, there are quite a few employees that are enjoying work from home, but I think there's 25% of our employees that find it untenable to work from home. For them, we've got to come up with a solution sooner rather than later. But that presents a real conundrum, Neil, because if you've got 25% who aren't comfortable working from home and you want to bring them back into the office, but if you have 75% who continue to work from home, how do you create, I mean, Workday is famous for its culture. How do you create that kind of culture if people are having such different work experiences? I think it's going to be very challenging. And so I, I, I don't see us bringing only a small percentage back because they won't have a great time. They'll be wearing masks. They'll have to get tested. So I, I think we're going to come back more uh, geography by geography. Huh. So we look at uh, places like Dublin, we're beginning to open up Dublin in Japan and Korea uh, and other parts of Southeast Asia that I think have done a good job tackling the virus and have a culture of wearing masks and uh, dealing with these sorts of uh, challenges in the past. Uh, we are bringing people back into the office. So I think it'll be location by location. To me, it's possible that we'll bring back people in the first quarter, but it'll have to be a a broad group of people to make the culture work. And are you looking at kind of a hybrid approach where like maybe two days a week, everybody's in the office to get the cultural juices flowing. But if you want to work a couple days a week from home, you can do that. I think that's exactly where we're probably headed. It's still a work in progress. No one knows exactly how this is all going to play out. I'm not a believer that uh, having a significant population work from home forever is a good idea. You can't really develop a great culture. It's really hard to collaborate, especially on the R&D side when everybody is remote. You can execute well during this time, uh, but you really can't collaborate and innovate in the same way. And so I think it's really important that uh, we come up with a model that works for our culture, but also gives some flexibility. If people want to work a couple days a week from home, so be it. Yeah. For our people in the field, our sales and services people, they're at customer sites in a normal environment anyways, and many of them are working from home offices. It's it's much more about the corporate headquarters where R&D is such a a critical part of what we do, and and that collaboration and being in the office really matters. The the innovation. uh, Yeah. yeah. So, Anil, you've been talking about your employees, and I appreciate that. I know that's your philosophy of business, that you get the employees right first and the Uh, customers will follow. But let's talk about your customers because your software has been critical to other people being able to get work from home in place. What are you hearing from your customers? What are the trends you're seeing in the data you collect? What can you tell us about how this is playing out? 
Well, I, I definitely think, and I, you know, I'd, I'd love Mark and Salesforce in there that if you're a cloud company like a Workday or a Salesforce, you're just well positioned to support your customers. And our, our customers are generally very happy. And we're seeing, you know, when in HR and finance, these are mission critical applications that you need to run your business. We're seeing some of the largest payroll runs we've ever seen. We're seeing our planning system get used 30 times more than it was a year ago. People are planning and replanning and replanning. <laughs> and they can all do this remotely from home because of the power of the cloud. So, you know, what, what I've seen in the past is that if there's a trend that's strong going into uh, a difficult situation, an economic downturn, and picking up steam, it might hit a pause for a little bit, but coming out the other end, it tends to accelerate. And I think for the folks that are not in the cloud right now for our kinds of applications or Salesforce's kinds of applications, they're really struggling. They're struggling with having to have people on site. They're struggling with the lack of flexibility and agility in those in those legacy systems. So, uh, you know, our, our new business continues to be healthy, not pre-COVID, but, but healthy because people want to get off those legacy systems. And, and I would just say that I'm super proud of our services team and the way they've stepped up to take care of our customers. So many of our customers, UPS, FedEx, Home Depot, Walmart, these companies are on the front lines. Many health organizations are on the front lines, you know, J&J and all the other pharmaceutical companies. And our job into helping those companies run their business so that they can take care of the rest of us. Uh, and so we've found a way to make it work from home and take care of our customers. And they're the ones on the front line taking care of, of all of us. So just to make sure I'm hearing you correctly, you've taken a short-term hit, but you think in, in the medium and long-term, this is going to be great for the workday business. Yeah, I think, you know, we, I think like every company, our business continues to be strong with the industries that are strong. And then there are industries like transportation and hospitality right. that are not in a place to buy new systems. And uh, and we totally understand that and we want to help them get back yeah. to their business as soon as they can, but it, it, it does impact our business. So, hey everyone, we just heard Anil say that he doesn't see working from home to be a viable long-term solution for his company. Turns out he's not alone. I have Jeff Colvin, Fortune Senior Editor-at-Large, here to help us walk through a new story of his called Losing Connection. And it turns out what we're losing when we're apart may be innovation. Jeff, welcome. Thank you, Ellen, very much. I was very glad to hear Anil say that because it puts him in very good company. There are a lot of companies out there offering indefinite work from home. You know, They're telling people, you don't have to come back ever if you don't want to. But there is a group of very successful companies that are not taking that road. They are not offering that option. Apple, Amazon, Goldman Sachs, Google, Johnson & Johnson, they all take a different view, very similar to what Anil said. They want people back physically together as soon as it is safely possible. That's really what your story is about, isn't it? It's like those serendipitous moments where you get just the right idea or the right bit of encouragement when you don't expect to. And that's what a real office is for. Yeah. It is all about the special power of human interaction and specifically the importance of that in creativity and innovation, finding the right word in our business, finding the solution to a problem. These things happen much, much better when we are actually physically together than when we're not. 
So I'm going over your research here about being in person and how it drives yeah. trust. What did you learn about that? These results are simply amazing. This was research uh, that began on the subject of innovation and creativity. And the research subjects were teams who worked together and produced various ideas and solutions, which were rated for innovation and creativity by separate groups of peers who didn't know whose work they were looking at. And they wore what are called sociometers, these little devices that record which way a person is facing, which way they are looking, you know, when they turn their gaze this way or that, the tone of their voice. And what they found was that the most creative, innovative ideas came when people were looking face-to-face, eye-to-eye more, when they were facing one another directly more, even when they were confiding in one another more. Well, if you think of those activities, confiding, looking into the eyes and so forth, those are what you do when you really trust someone. And what they found, their conclusion was, there is no substitute for face-to-face interaction in building this trust. So this does not bode well for companies who are thinking of adopting just widespread, large-scale, indefinite work-from-home policies. I understand that will save some money. It is absolutely driving some working parents to the brink is, is one big issue. But even assuming that companies can fill in the blanks with new policies or other support services, it just doesn't sound like permanently working from home is going to be a good idea. It's generally not. I suspect what these companies are going to find is that they may regret that. They may want to require that people come into the office at least for a certain amount of time. But they also may find that people want to come into the office at least a certain amount of time. That interaction is valuable, and we have a very, very deep need for it. The difficulty is, and it's a difficulty, you know, not just for outside researchers like us, but for definitely for the companies themselves, is that the loss of innovation is not something you can easily see. You, you can never imagine what might have been thought of but wasn't because people weren't together. And this is the real danger because companies that suffer as a result of not having people physically together can go for a long time without realizing the problems that they are having. You, you, you never know what you have prevented from happening. And that's the, the sort of insidious nature of this for the companies that are adopting that policy. Do you have any tips? Did you, did you get any advice about how to make at least the interim a little bit more productive? Yeah, there are a few things we can do. I mean, as we said, look, right now, for an awful lot of businesses, people have to be working remotely, and it just, it must be so. So what can we do? Well, one, encourage everyone, and certainly for ourselves, expand your conversations, even if they're just digital. The most effective teams are ones where the team members go have conversations with people outside the normal location or industry or discipline of the people, and then bring back to the team what they've heard. Well, we can still do that. Pay attention to how much everybody talks. In the most effective teams, 
No one dominates. If you can do that and just pay attention, it helps to get lots of ideas on the table and it helps to maximize interaction. And even if you can't get physically together at work, see if it's possible to get the team physically together at least once. Just getting people together for a brief time builds all the trusted relationships and establishes the social norms of the group in the way nothing else can. And then that will carry on for a while. That can be reinforced with online conversations. You have to refresh it every so often, but it can make a big difference. Well, from my home to yours, thank you very much, Jeff. Thanks, Ellen. I look forward to seeing you. I miss you, buddy. I'm here with Joe Yukazaglu, CEO of Deloitte US, who's the sponsor of this podcast and one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the changing rules of business leadership. Joe, there was a massive shift to work from home during the pandemic. I'm hearing from a lot of business leaders that many of their workers want to and may continue to work from home indefinitely. Are we in the middle of a major shift in remote work? There will be a shift. The question is how far. The pendulum always overswings. And here, that's, of course, been out of necessity. But we've proven in a few short months the level of productivity that can be achieved through a virtual mode of engagement. And there are tremendous benefits to society that will persist over the long term, even when we're past the pandemic. This is offering people greater flexibility over where they choose to live, less time spent commuting, a reduced carbon footprint. Across our entire client base, we see a commitment to embed what's worked well into their operating model going forward. But this is not going to be all or nothing. Most organizations will construct a hybrid model. There are elements of in-person interaction that will continue to be essential to building trust, to sparking innovation, to creating the type of team dynamic that's so important to achieving high levels of productivity. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Joe, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Neil, one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because you are one of the most serious and thoughtful people I know about this whole move to stakeholder capitalism towards paying attention not just to your shareholders, but to your employees, your customers, the communities they operate in, the environment, and so forth. Can you tell me why that's so important to you in Workday? A lot of it goes back to the founding of Workday, and my co-founder, Dave Duffield is one of the great human beings that's ever been on this planet. At PeopleSoft, he pioneered a way of doing business about treating employees well, taking care of customers, being a good corporate citizen. And in a time that it wasn't fashionable to be a nice person in Silicon Valley, um, you know, today everybody's focused on, on creating a good culture across the globe. In no small part due to your lists, <laughs> great places to work. Those are both just a reflection of who you are as a company and great recruiting tools if you're a good company to work for. But taking that value system, you know, as we started Workday, we thought, let's just take it to, let's just take it to all people we touch. Companies should have a soul. I believe in this environment, companies are stepping up to do the right thing. I talked to a lot of CEOs and companies need to have a soul and need to, need to step up in tough times. And that includes not just for your employees and your customers. Shareholders are obviously very important, but I also think the community really matters. 
you can't be successful in Silicon Valley and, and see poverty and people struggling in, in a town five miles away where they're in the wrong zip code. That's not right. So, so we have always been very involved with the community. We set up the Workday Foundation right before we went public, and it's been very active in job creation, uh, mostly for young adults. And most recently, we launched our partnership with Steph Curry and Aisha Curry around helping the youth in Oakland around nutrition, which is a real challenge. Food insecurity is a huge problem right now around activity and play and, and education. And, you know, it makes our employees feel good about the company they work at. I think it makes Workday a good citizen in a time where we all have to be good citizens. And frankly, I think shareholders, uh, the smart shareholders get it that it's the right thing to do. Anil, I love that companies should have a soul comment. I'm sitting here in front of a bookcase that is filled with like every great business book of the last 50 years, most of which at some point in the last 40 years I've read. I don't think you would find in any one of those books the sentence, companies need to have a soul. Where does that come from? Why has that become something now? Because it's clearly not something they teach in business school. Well, I, I think it's as companies became more global, uh, especially technology companies, and their, their technologies and applications like ours are far reaching. And when I think about you know, the fact that we have over 40 million employees in the system and we work with all these great CHROs and CFOs on the finance side, well, they expect us to have a point of view about not just how to use our software, but how to do it the right way. I, I really believe that every business wants to be better and wants to treat their employees well and wants to be part of the community. It all starts at the top with leadership. And we're in this great vantage point where we can not only help our customers run their business better with our software, but also bring forward best practices on, you know, how do you engage your employees? How do you be uh, more involved? And I also learn a lot from other CEOs about what it means to, to be involved in the community. So Dan Gilbert, good friend from Quicken Loans, what he's done from the perspective of bringing Detroit back and, and others have been involved too. Mary Barra has done amazing things yeah. in Detroit. Yeah. You see business leaders taking on things that historically government took on. Yeah. And they're being quite effective because they can not only put policy in place, they can actually bring jobs to these places. Yeah, yeah. so Workday feeds the corporate soul. Yeah, that's a good <laughs> way, right? I, I do think there's something, you know, we're, we're in areas beyond HR, we're in finance, we're in procurement, we're in planning, but our roots are in HR and that, that is all about people. And so, yeah. you know, a lot, of, a lot of my life as CEO has been taking on the mantle from Dave and, and pushing forward what Dave pioneered in terms of, of having a company with a soul. Anil, I've said this before, I think I've said it to you before, but if I had had to guess back in March when the lockdown began, I would have guessed that, oh man, we're heading into a deep recession here. Everybody's going to be freaking out about the numbers and the bottom line. And all this talk about social responsibility and social impact is going to be put to the side for a while. And that's not what's happened, is it? Why? Well, I, I think we, we had a series of events, unfortunate events, and starting with, not really starting with, but really highlighted by the murder of George Floyd. And, you know, I think it just struck at a moment in time where there was already growing concern. And I think the pandemic highlights the gap between the haves and have nots. A lot of that is digital based, you know, kids from poor families don't even have internet access. And yeah. I think it's all come together in a way and, and people are speaking up. And, 
you know, the CEOs, to, to the point I mentioned earlier, the CEOs are getting together. I'm part of the business council and business roundtable. For the last month and a half, it's really been, it was the first meetings three months ago were all about how to survive through COVID, run our business through COVID. The last month and a half of those three months has been about social justice. And while I don't think we have a role to play in social justice, I think we have, that's not where Workday fits in the world. We have a place to, a role to play in, in creating opportunities for all and making sure that people that have been left behind are no longer left behind and everybody is on the same page. And I, and I find it, I find it really exciting the way corporations are all trying to do the right thing. Uh, Ken Frazier from Merck is really at the forefront. He's an amazing human being. He's rallying all of us to put specific targets in place to really have an impact and create more diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Yeah, let's talk about the racial justice issue because that's a difficult one for the technology business in general, and I think for Workday specifically. I mean, there just aren't a lot of blacks in tech businesses like yours. What do the numbers look like at Workday? Uh, Less than 3%. It's not a number specifically for blacks. Uh, We've got decent underrepresented minority population in in our our company, and I think it's several things. Uh, Number one, you know, we have to do a better job recruiting from college and we have to do a better job specifically with the historically uh, black colleges. And there's some great tech schools like North Carolina A&T that are producing uh, really qualified and talented engineers. It's in North Carolina. So, so maybe the thing to do is we need to branch out of the Bay Area and look at locations outside of the Bay Area for hiring. I think that's one. The second part is, you know, we've had these conversations and Michael Bush is a good friend and now on our board. Uh, there's a sense that if you're a black employee, you don't get the same mentorship and sense of opportunities that a white employee or an Asian employee might get. And as I dig through it, and I now have two of our black employees who are mentoring me on the issues that, that they face every day, uh, I think that's accurate. And so we have to we have to create mentorship programs so that not only do we get more black employees into the company, but we actually create career paths into leadership for them. I think in the Bay Area, we all think uh, the world is a meritocracy, and I think there's some truth to it. I don't think that's actually how the rest of the world works out. Uh, and so you really do have to lean in on yeah. some of these topics, and even in the Bay Area, to really create great career paths for everybody, not just for few. Yeah, I, I want to point out to listeners that the mere fact that you're willing to share your statistics on Black participation at Workday makes you part of a pretty small minority. You know, there's not widespread data on this. It feels like the first step is transparency, and I applaud you for your transparency, but can we get the business community more broadly to participate in transparency? Well, that's a great question, and you know, that's where uh, Workday comes into play in, in the software. I mean, we have 50% of the uh, Fortune 100 and I think 45% of the Fortune 500. In our system, we have all their diversity data. It's their data, it's not our data. We're not a social media company. Um, so it's very clear it's their data. But we could help them expose it. And, uh, and I think if you wanna have good results, you first have to measure it. If you can't measure it, you can't impact it. And I, and I think that uh, that's a big part of it where we, we can, provide dashboards and technology to our customers to be able to really understand their diversity data. Uh, Our chief diversity officer, Karen Taylor, has been pushing forward on a program we call VIBE, Value, Inclusion, Belonging, and Equity. And we've created an index around it, which is really to measure 
the feeling of, of belonging and fairness in a corporate setting. And I think something like that's going to be important across all organizations to make sure they can really measure the impact that they're having with these, I think this, this heightened sense of urgency and focus on diversity and inclusion. You know, you have such a mass of data about how people are responding to current events. I know you, you obviously protect the privacy of that data, but do you see some interesting trends there that can help us figure out where this crazy world is headed? You know, it's, it's hard. It's hard to see. I think I, I saw some trends about a month and a half ago, and then we had a second lapse of COVID. I think people were beginning to plan for going back to work with A teams and B teams. A lot of the manufacturing companies were using Workday software and reports to track COVID cases around the globe and moving manufacturing capacity around the globe. And you could kind of sense from talking to them uh, where the hotspots were based on where they were moving capacity to. But now we're, especially in the U.S., we're back in the thick of things and uh, we're back to mostly working from home and having only essential workers back in the workplace. You know, I don't know where that ends. The, the, the thing that I have seen is that every CEO is becoming now a health expert. You, you have to be. And, you know, if 10 years ago everyone was talking about every CEO needs to be a technology expert or their business will be out of, well, they'll be out of business because of technology disruption. Today, every CEO needs to be a healthcare expert, maybe not an expert, but knowledgeable to figure out yeah. how to navigate this world. And that in and of itself is kind of a move towards stakeholder capitalism, right? This is a stakeholder issue. Yeah. And so we're actually going to take uh, more ownership of our employees' well-being post-COVID. Uh, we're going to take on flu shots. We're going to have a, a clinic, at least in our big locations, and really lean into health and well-being for our employees, because I think that's front and center. Uh, we're an employee-centric company, and we've all learned a lot during this pandemic about how, how we have to take care of our employees. Anil, as I, I said earlier, we invited you on this podcast because you do represent a different approach to business leadership, but do you get the sense that more and more business leaders are continuing to move in this direction? Are we at some sort of a tipping point in the way capitalism works in this world? Uh, you know, I, the CEOs that I spend time with, I think, are, are wired in a similar way. I mean, uh, you and I are very close friends with Mark Benioff. He's really the person that got me onto this whole stakeholder theory approach, and he's been pushing it for a long time. Uh, he encouraged Dave and I to set up our foundation before we went public. I mean, I think Mark is really at the forefront of, of social awareness. But I think a lot of CEOs are. You know, John Donahoe at Nike is, is wired that way, and he's one of my mentors. Uh, I look around James Gorman and Morgan Stanley. The, the current generation of CEOs cares deeply about the social issues, the equality issues. And I don't know where the awakening came from, but I think as we've evolved over the last 25 years to being more employee-centric companies, and it's very, it's very clear from all of your data and Michael's data that uh, companies that are more employee-centric do better, right? They're, the stock price performance of employee-centric companies are much stronger. I think the people that have been elevated to the leadership in those companies tend to be more employee-centric and as a result, more community-centric. Yeah, yeah. Anil, thanks for being on Leadership Next. Thanks for having me, Alan. Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. 
Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes.